0: Guys always get me with the woos. Uh, You can open up in your copy of the scriptures to Philippians 2. If you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles over on the table. Uh, if you'd like one, you can feel free to grab one. Don't be afraid of just you know, getting up and walk across the middle. It's okay. You won't, you won't interrupt me. You won't interrupt anybody. And if you want to use one for the service, go for it. Take one home. Hand them out. Uh, we want God's Word proliferating uh, all of Williamstown and South Jersey. So, um, Listen as I read the Word of God this morning. Philippians 2, starting in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray one more time. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray that you would help us now to see wonderful things in your law. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. Uh, that you would take now this this meditation on your word and use it to nourish your people, that our eyes would be set again, uh, not on ourselves, but on Christ, on his finished work, on his goodness, on his glory, on his worth, on his beauty, that we might find rest in him again. Would you do that for the sake of your name, for the sake of our peace in you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you know, we're continuing through our series in Paul's letter uh, to the Philippians. And hopefully you remember, I've said this every week, I think, and you're probably going to get tired of hearing me say it, but you will remember what this letter is about by the time we're done, Uh, that Paul's main aim in writing this letter is to encourage the church at Philippi to continue progressing in the faith, to continue making progress in their faith. And last week we saw that Paul's call to them was to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. That is to live out the reality of the salvation that they had received. And and now here Paul is going to take that principle of working out their salvation, of living out the reality of the salvation they have received. He's going to take that principle and he's going to put his finger on a particular area in the life of the Philippian church Uh, That area is the area of grumbling and disputing. Now, the first thing you need to know is that when the New Testament uses that word, it's bad. Uh, Sometimes, so you could translate it complaining, uh, but complaining actually can have a good connotation in the scriptures. For example, David brings his complaints to the Lord, and he's commended, right? He complains in faith and is commended. But here, this word grumble has the negative connotation of selfishness, impatience, bitterness, and resentment. This is the kind of grumbly complaining that gives birth to disputing or arguing. And again, this is not the kind of argument characterized by you know productive discussion across the table where there's disagreement. This is antagonistic, combative, quarrelsome bickering. So to put it simply, Paul is saying to the Philippians, and by extension to us, don't let your life be characterized by selfish complaining and nasty arguing. That's what he's saying. Now, I know that there are some people that think the Bible is this sort of archaic, distant, antiquated book that can't possibly have any relevance for, you know, the enlightened people of our day. But, and by the way, you can understand why that would be, right? At face value, like a book like Leviticus is hard to understand. And you could see why someone would say there's distance. You got like, you know, sacrificial rites and priestly orders. And it feels far away. And How could this be relevant? And we can be honest and acknowledge that sometimes the Bible is hard to read and sometimes even harder to make sense of. But every so often, you get to a passage that might it might as well have been written yesterday, right? And I think that's what we, we have here this morning. I think if, if the apostles were alive today, and if they wrote a letter to the church in the United States, much like they wrote a letter to the church in Philippi, I think they would have lots of things to say. But I think one of the things that they would say would be, Stop complaining, stop whining, and quit bickering with each other. Right? I think if the apostles wrote a letter to the Church of America, they would say, guys, stop complaining, stop whining, stop bickering, stop quarreling with each other. And see, here's the point. For many of us, complaining comes as naturally as breathing, doesn't it? Right? We, we inhale God's goodness, we inhale God's blessing, And we exhale murmuring and grumbling and complaining. It's so commonplace, so accepted in our society, we don't even realize we're doing it. We we just breathe in and breathe out. And it's complaining and grumbling. Brothers and sisters, how much of your life? I'm trying to put, you know, shine the spotlight. Sometimes we we don't even see it, but just take a moment. How much of our lives can be characterized in some way by a grumbling heart, a complaining spirit, a nitpicky quarreling over trivial things? This morning, God's word comes to us through Paul's letter and says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. In other words, the church, the body of Christ is to be marked out by lives that are not characterized by complaining and bickering, but by gratitude and rejoicing. The church, the body of Christ, is to be marked out not by complaining and bickering, but by rejoicing and gladness and gratitude. As God's people, we have more reason than everyone to rejoice, don't we? Amen. I appreciate that, sister. That's encouraging. Let it rip. Amen. We do because we know all of God's blessings to us in Christ. So that's the command. And, and here in our text, Paul is going to help us along in our obedience to this command in three ways. Uh, he's going to show us the reason for our obedience, he's going to show us an example of obedience, and then he's going to show us the way to obedience. Right, three things the reason for our obedience. An example of obedience and the way to obedience. So let's look at the reason first. Why should we be so concerned about resisting the urge to complain and bicker? Here's Paul's answer He says, It's one of the main ways you stand out as God's children in a dark world. It's one of the main ways you stand out as God's children in a dark world. Look at the text. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Do, do, do you see what he's saying there? Now, don't get it sideways. Don't get it twisted. But Paul's not saying that refusing to grumble or complain is what makes you a child of God. Paul has already acknowledged that the Philippians are children of God in his greeting. He says, grace and peace to you from God, our father. He acknowledges them to be children of God in Christ. They are blameless and in and innocent children without blemish. His call then is for them to, to live out the reality of the salvation that God has worked for them and the identity that they now have in him as his children. It's what we saw last week, that they are to work out their salvation. They're not working for their salvation. They're working out the reality of the salvation that they have already received. So in verse 16, Paul calls them to this non-grumbly, non-arguing kind of life so that he may be proud that he did not run in vain or labor in vain. In in other words, their obedience to this command authenticates and proves the reality that they have indeed been joined to God, that they have indeed been joined to Christ by faith and made children. That Paul's ministry among them was not a waste, but that his gospel ministry has borne gospel fruit in their lives. And so to encourage them to persevere in their faith. Remember, Paul's writing to encourage them to, to make progress in their faith. So to encourage them, he points them forward to the day of Christ and like a father to his children. This is what he says. He says, on that day when Christ returns. And, and by the way, you have to remember that Paul's awaiting potentially execution. He doesn't wind up being executed, but he, he's anticipating that this may be the end of his life and he may, may never see the Philippians again. The next t- time they see one another may, in, may be in glory. And so he points them forward to the day of Christ and he says, I am going to be so proud of you on that day when I see that my ministry was not in vain and that you lived out the reality of the gospel I preached to you. That's what he's saying says, on that day when I see you again, I'm going to be so proud when I see the reality of the gospel worked out in your life. And that's the point. That's what he's trying to encourage them to do, to live out the reality of their identity as children of God by refusing to live as those who grumble and bicker. And when they do this, when they do this, Paul says they will stick out. They'll stand out like a sore thumb in the world. And that's the reason Paul says, do all things without grumbling and arguing. In other words, be what you are as children of God so that you will shine like lights in a dark and dying world. Do you see? Now, brothers and sisters, you you need to know this morning, if, if you are in Christ this morning, God has made you his children. And if he has made you his children, he has by necessity made you light. He's made you light. It's a a wonderful metaphor that travels all throughout the scriptures. I'll give you two. There's so many examples of this. In Old Testament, New Testament, all over the place. Uh, Isaiah 60, God speaks about the future of his people saying, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Jesus says in the Sermon of the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. So let your light shine before others so they can see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And the, the, the light metaphor is a brilliant one. I love the light metaphor. It's a brilliant metaphor. Here's the thing about light. You, you know, light is always doing two things simultaneously. It's illuminating and it's exposing. At The same time, it's doing two things all the time, illuminating and exposing. So think about the last time you saw the sunrise. Maybe you were at the beach or maybe you were in like a clearing. Maybe you were at the like top of a building. And when you got there, it was dark and shadowy and hard to make things out. It was just vague and ambiguous. You saw shapes, you saw shadows. But then as soon as that light, that first ray of light began to, to peak up over the horizon, everything began to change, right? The, the light began to, to sharpen and illuminate the scenery around you, right? If you were at the beach, the water that appeared black now becomes a crystal blue. If you were in a clearing, you know, the, 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 the flowers that were just kind of like these wispy, shadowy things waving. All of a sudden, the light hits them and, and, and the beautiful colors of the flowers emerge and, and you see these magnificent tokens of God's creation. If you were at the top of the building, maybe you saw the faint shadowy shapes below the building, but then as the the light came up, as the sun rose and and light broke in, you saw brilliant leaves and the colors of treetops below you. The light illuminated again the beautiful world that God made, and you are reminded again of his majesty and goodness. But at the very same time that was happening, the light illuminating and showing you the goodness of God and the majesty and the wonder of his creation, it was also exposing what the dark had been hiding. So when you're at the, the beach and the light came, all of a sudden, you, because of the light, you saw the trash littered all over the beach. And when you were in the clearing, you saw there was a sign off in the distance and the, the sun rises and you see it's a billboard for like an abortion clinic. And then you're at the top of the building, and and the light rises. You see the beautiful trees, but then the light exposes underneath a homeless guy living in a gutter covered in newspaper. You see, at the same time, the light is both illuminating and exposing what the dark was hiding. And and, and so here's why this metaphor is brilliant. This is what Paul wants us to understand. As children of God, you have been made light in the world. Right? As children of God, you have been made light in the world. And that means your lives are supposed to be living parables that both illuminate the goodness of God and expose the sin and corruption of man. That's what the life of God's people does in the world. It exposes the, 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 what the darkness was hiding, exposes the corruption and the twistedness Right? The, the Bible, the, the, the verse we just read talks about the, the crookedness and the twistedness of the generation, Right, where a, a blameless, innocent uh, group of people, children without blemish, amidst a crooked and twisted generation. So twofold, as children, we, we illuminate the goodness of God, but also call attention, exposing the sin and corruption of man. And, and now look. Can you see how refusing to grumble and bicker actually does this? Maybe you can't. Let me, let me play this out for you. What Paul's saying is when you refuse to live a life grumbling and complaining, you are acting like the light. And as the light, you will do both of these things. You will, you will shine the light on the goodness of God, and you will also expose the corruption and the sin of man. Uh, look how this uh, does this in particular. What does your life say when in the midst of real hardship, real difficulty, real trial, what does your life say when you refuse to grumble and complain? When in abiding faith in the Lord, you trust in him amidst your sufferings and trials and refuse to grumble and complain. Do you know what your life says? Do you know what your life calls attention to in that moment? What your life shouts to the world around you is the goodness and trustworthiness of God. Do you see? In the midst of hardship and trial, when you refuse to grumble and refuse to complain, but instead move out in rejoicing and gladness and confidence. I'm not talking about, you know, just shallow pie in the sky, crit- no, I'm talking about real suffering, but you moving out in the world in a confident, joyful gladness in God that trusts him when you refuse to grumble and complain you say to the world that God no matter what I'm facing is good and he's trustworthy but now do you see the flip side of that coin as well do you see how our lives also hold up a mirror to the world revealing sin when we refuse to grumble and complain we actually show the world its own crookedness and twistedness. Let me, let me ask you, maybe you've had this experience, maybe you haven't. H- have you ever been excluded or marginalized or dismissed because you weren't willing to commiserate with a group of people, like at your work or something? You weren't willing to join in and just commiserate and complain and bicker about whatever, the boss, the circumstances? Have you ever been uh, unwilling to, to join in what you understood to be sinful bickering and sinful uh, you know, argumentativeness or um, grumbling and complaining, and so you were kind of like castigated? Like you're not one of us. Why, why does that happen? It's because when Christians refuse to complain and bicker but instead choose uh, choose to rejoice in the goodness and trustworthiness of God, it is an unmistakable, though sometimes subconscious reminder to those around them that ultimately complaining is the sinful grumbling of the heart against God. It's a reminder to those around you that even subconsciously, that your grumbling and complaining is uh, the evidence of a heart that is in rebellion against God, and now listen, I, I wonder, and I'm looking at your faces, I wonder if I wonder if you think I'm making a big a bigger deal about this than I should be. like what's the harm with like uh, just a, like a, a gripe session what's the harm with just you know venting you know some harmless just back and forth complaining about the boss? Man, he's such an idiot, man he just keeps. All this stuff he keeps asking us to do, he doesn't know what he's doing. What's the, what's the harm? Is that that big a deal? Here's what I want you to see. It's, a, it's an incredibly big deal. Think, I'm not going to read it to you, but think back to Genesis 3. Do, do, you, do you know where the fall of man begins? It begins with a heart that grumbles against God. The enemy comes to Eve and says, did God actually say that you can't eat or touch of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And, and Eve responds, we can eat of any tree in the garden, but God said we can't eat or touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But there's, there's this little grumble in her heart that begins, in her heart and in Adam's heart that begins. A doubting of God's goodness a questioning of whether or not God will supply their needs or whether or not it would be better for, for her and for Adam to just sort of strike out on their own and, and rule themselves and, and uh, take care of themselves and liberate themselves from uh, the, the, the gracious rule of God. There's a grumble in her heart that begins that gives birth to outright rebellion and rejection of God's rule. It's a grumbling heart. In fact, I think you could probably make an argument if you went back in Genesis 3 that the very first, I mean, it's a one big giant thing, but you could you can make an argument that the very first sort of inkling of sin in Genesis 3 is, is a grumbling, a complaining, a discontentedness in uh, being under the rule and the kind care of God. And that story plays out throughout redemptive history, doesn't it? Trev read earlier from Exodus 16. You, you know the story of the Israelites who God shows abundant kindness and goodness and graciousness to them. He, he delivers them out of Egypt through no work of their own. Miracle upon miracle upon miracle. He delivers them out of Egypt with tons of riches. Promising to bring them into, their, into the promised land. And they get into the wilderness and what do they start doing? Grumbling. Take us back to Egypt, Egypt. You just brought us out here to starve, grumbling, complaining, and, and 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 we sort of snicker and laugh and but isn't that us though? Like are we so different? We're not. We're the same people who have known over and over again God's blessing and, his, and God's goodness, and yet don't we don't complaints and grumbles rise up in our heart when things don't go precisely our way. When we feel we've been slighted, overlooked in some way, our hearts begin to grumble and complain. And what Paul is teaching us here is that ultimately those grumblings, those complainings are are not just grumblings against circumstances, they're grumblings against God, God, against his uh, rule in our life, against what he uh, calls us to walk through. As his children. But when in faith, as the children of God, we submit ourselves to him, we content ourselves in, in knowing his kind and good and righteous purposes in our life and refuse to grumble and complain. We we shine forth the reality that He is a God that is worthy to be trusted. We shine as as lights in the world. That's the first reason. That's Paul's first point. That's my first point. That, that our reason for our obedience is that we stand out and 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 so shine the goodness of God. But Paul Paul realizes that sometimes uh we need more than just a reason to obey, but an example. Examples are helpful. A role model to inspire us. And so that's what we see next. We see a reason for our obedience and then an example of obedience. Look at verse 17 there with me. Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, some commentators see a sharp right turn here in Paul's letter that now he's just sort of reverting back to talking about his circumstances, Uh, and while he does in some sense change the topic of conversation, it's hard not to see the circumstances of his own life and how he's handling them as an example of this kind of life that he's commending to to the Philippians, a kind of life that is not characterized by grumbling and arguing, but by rejoicing and gladness, right? Think about it. Paul has every reason to grumble and argue, doesn't he? He has every reason to be discontented and grumbly and he's, he's been unjustly arrested and imprisoned. The, the charges are bogus, of course. He's awaiting a trial that may result in his execution. He has every worldly reason to sort of fold his arms and stick out his lip and let go all manner of grumblings and murmurings. He has every reason to argue and bicker with the Roman officials, and yet he says, if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, which is basically Paul's way of saying, if this means my execution, if if this means prolonged suffering that ultimately results in my execution for the good of God's people, I am glad and I will rejoice. You see? Far from having contempt or or discontentment, or bitterness, or grumblings in his heart towards God, he has thanksgiving, and contentment, and gladness, and joy. In the midst of incredible suffering, there's no complaining, no bickering, no grumbling, just rejoicing. He goes on to say, likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Without question, Paul wants them to rejoice in his circumstances. And he talks about earlier in the letter, the actual benefit that God has brought about through those circumstances. But it's more comprehensive than that. Paul wants them to see in him an example of how they are to face all suffering without grumbling, without uh, arguing, but with gratitude and grace. Now, I have to say that I don't think Paul is being like some kind of egomaniac here. Like I don't think Paul thinks that he's like some gift to the Philippian church, and he's just this amazing person that if they would just follow him, everything would be better. But Paul does understand the importance of examples and role models. Examples and role role models inspire us. They do. I don't know. Um, if you saw this video, I saw a video this this week that 's been circulating. Um, it was uh, posted on espn 's uh, youtube i don 't do sports analogies a lot, but th- this is i think you 'll be able to appreciate this even if you 're not a sports person um, so in the video there's there 's a twelve year old boy named uh, Isaiah Jarvis whose team is hoping to make it to the Little League World Series, and he steps up to bat. And he gets abs. The pitcher throws the ball. He just gets absolutely drilled, like right in the ear hole on the helmet. Like it hit. The helmet flies off, and immediately he just his cr- crippling pain. He falls down to the ground, and and you know everyone rushes over. Now, knowing what you know about the world, and I'm sure some of you have watched baseball games before, how do you expect the rest of the story to unfold? Right. The, the batter gets, like, drilled in the head. You expect the batter to get up and, like, throw his hands up, you know, start screaming and yelling at the pitcher, maybe rushes the mound, throwing punches, yelling at the officials, yelling at the coaches, yelling at the opposing team members, certainly yelling at the pitcher that threw the pitch. And if you've watched baseball, baseball for any length of time, like, you've seen that scenario unfold, right? Right. But what happens instead in this instance is that this young man, Zay Jarvis, slowly saunters down the first baseline. He takes his base and then he, he jogs over to the pitcher who was visibly upset by the pitch. The, 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 the pitcher later on, they did a little interview with him and he said he was afraid that everyone was going to hate him for, for hitting this kid in the head because he could have gotten really hurt. And uh, the young uh, The young boy, Isaiah, jogs over to this pitcher that just is overwhelmed and can't pull himself together. And, and, And instead of grumbling, instead of nasty arguing, instead of throwing punches, instead of hate, Zay gives the pitcher a hug, consoles him, reassures him that he's okay, and told the pitcher, hey, man, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. Last I checked, that video had been viewed 215,000 times on ESPN. Why do you think that is? Because it's so rare. right? You expect, you expect the kid to get up and like charge them out and start throwing punches. But instead, he walks over to his, his you know, the, the other team's pitcher who just nailed him in the head, gives him a hug and says, hey, man, you're doing a great job. Keep it up, man. I'm okay. You're okay. Take a breath keep going. They did an interview with Isaiah afterwards. This is what he said. He said, I saw Caden, that's the picture. I saw Caden was getting a little emotional up there and feeling bad for me. And when I saw him getting emotional, I was just trying to be like Jesus and comfort him and really let him know I was okay. I just wanted to make sure he was okay too. Do all things without grumbling and disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see what I'm saying? Now, maybe you saw that video, maybe you didn't. Maybe you'll go search it and go look at it after the service. It's a good video. But it doesn't really matter. Because look, God has provided us many examples. You know, All you need to do is actually look around at this body. that There are many of you in this room that I have been inspired by as I've seen you walk through suffering and hardship and difficulty without complaining, without grumbling, without calling into question the goodness of God, but continuing to trust in the Lord's provision. And as you have done that, you have shined before all of us the reality that God is a, a good God, worthy to be trusted that God takes care of his children, right? When when your joy in the Lord transcends the hardships you're facing, you say to all those around you, my God is so good. He has never failed me. And even though this is hard, I trust him that he has my good at the center of his heart. And in doing so, we are encouraged and inspired we are we, 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 we long to live those kinds of lives as we see them. Paul knows the importance of examples. And so he says, look, rejoice. Look at me, I'm in prison, but I'm rejoicing and I'm glad. And be encouraged and be uh, inspired to live lives that similarly are filled with rejoicing and gladness, not grumbling and disputing. That's the reason for our obedience, an example of obedience. But now here's the way to obedience. See, here's the thing. If you've lived the Christian life for any length of time, you know that inspiration will only take you so far. You know that inspiration will... it only take you so far. You, you may see others living lives of joyful contentment, even in the midst of real trouble and pain, and your heart is touched, right? You appreciate the beauty of it. I'm t- like I watch this video probably like a dozen times, and every time there's like tears in my eyes. And you you know you the beauty of it. You, you it's so it's inspiring, and you and you you may even feel a longing to be like those examples that are set before you. But ultimately, your good intentions and your holy desires are not enough to actually make you godly. Your good intentions and your good desires are not enough to actually make you godly. If they were, then there would have been no need for Christ to come into the world and die. You realize that, right? This is where Christianity splits from every other human religion. Right, The world says, look at how good it would be if people didn't grumble and complain, but instead were good towards one another. So do better. Like, try harder. Like, climb the ladder. Make it happen. And when, that, when you go down that path, you've got two options. You've got moral relativism or you've got legalism. You've got the people that feel overwhelmed by it, and they just give up and they say, you know what? It doesn't matter whether people are good to one another. It just all morals are relative and, you know, forget it. Or you get the legalist. You get the person that's like, I am going to literally beat myself into submission. I will become the least grumbly, least disputing, least argumentative person you've ever seen. And then guess what happens? Then you start looking down your nose at everyone else around you because of how good you're doing. Or you're crushed by the fact that you're not doing it well enough. And you're ruined by it. If God just laid out the law, gave us a few examples and said, go and do likewise, we would, we would have no hope. But the gospel is not do so that you, you will be accepted. It's in God you are accepted, therefore go and do. In Christ you are made whole, therefore live accordingly. If God said, go and do likewise, we would have no hope. And the reason for that is that our sin runs so deep and our grumbling attitudes are so ingrained in our hearts that we need something more than inspiration. What we need is, is grace-wrought transformation. We need grace-wrought transformation. We need to be changed. We need life. Right, We need hearts of stone that are bent towards grumbling and complaining, changed so that they become hearts that are filled with gratitude and joy. And what has that kind of power? How can we actually live transformed lives, not of grumbling and arguing, but of gladness and joy no matter our circumstances? Paul gives us the answer right there in the middle of the passage. Look there again at verse 14. He says do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life holding fast to the word of life you see where does the power to live this kind of life come from it comes from holding fast to the word of life that is clinging to it, dwelling on it, persisting in it. Now, he, here's what's really interesting about this. As, as I And let me just say this from the jump. When Paul says holding fast to the word of life, he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the good news. He's talking about the whole of the redemptive work God has done in Christ to make his people his own through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But here's what's very interesting about this. As, as, I, as I thought about Paul's choice of words here, it struck me that grumbling and disputing is a kind of holding fast just to the wrong thing. It's a kind of holding fast. You're just holding fast to the wrong thing. Think about it. When, when you find yourself grumbling and complaining what are you doing? You're you're holding on to some perceived injustice, some wrong, some slight, some circumstance that didn't go your way. You dwell on it. You cling to it. You play it over and over again in your head. And the more it goes over and over again, the more grumbly you get, the more annoyed you get, the more frustrated you get, the more argumentative and bickering you get. Right? You're holding on to it. You can't let it go. You play it out in your head. You know it shouldn't, it, sh- it shouldn't have gone like that. Uh, you, I didn't deserve that. Uh, th- they were the ones that were wrong, not me. Uh, I, I was cheated. I was passed over. Why does this always happen to me? How could God let something like this happen to me? Why does this person always have it so easy when I have it so hard? And you tell yourself the story of your circumstances over and over and over again. And what happens is this grumbling heart then spills out into complaints and into murmuring and into argumentative bickering. You you refuse to put it down. And what spills out is the overflow of bitterness and resentment that builds up in your heart. It's a kind of holding fast, isn't it? You're just holding fast to the wrong thing. But Paul says, hold fast to the word of life. It's Paul's shorthand, again, for saying the gospel of Christ. Paul says, stop telling yourself the story of what's going wrong in your life and start telling yourself the story of what Jesus Christ has done to make you right with God and to give you the promise of eternal life. And that word will transform you. You see? So hold fast to the word of life. Paul says, Look again to Jesus. Look again to Jesus. You you see, if ever there was someone who had the the reason and the right to grumble and argue over his circumstances, it was Jesus. Wasn't it? Though he was the son of God, the king of kings, the promised Messiah of Israel, he was rejected and mocked and insulted and scorned. He spent his life healing the sick, raising the dead, giving hope to the poor, and (laughs) preaching the good news of the kingdom. But instead of love and gratitude, he was met with hatred and violence. In the end, he was betrayed by his closest friends. He was wrongly accused by hypocritical leaders. He was unjustly sentenced by a cowardly Roman official. Though he had done nothing wrong, nor did an untrue word ever escape his mouth. He was condemned, a blasphemer, and sentenced to die in the most excruciating and humiliating way ever devised in the history of man. I mean, can can you imagine, can you imagine the, the injustice of it, right? The humiliation of it, the unfairness of it all. What would you have done? Like, do this little thought experiment with me. What would you have done? You you know, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ had at his disposal legions of angels that he could have called down at any moment to vindicate him and slaughter all his enemies. It, it, it's, it's, it's like Jesus had a cosmic machine gun in his hand and he could have pulled the trigger at any moment and wiped out every single person that ever dismissed him or rejected him or uh, abused him or, or hurt him. What would you have done? You know, We get cut off in traffic and we're ready to like, knock someone's head off. Our plans get interrupted. And we're ready to just like blow someone apart. You know, I don't, my clothes, the, right cl- the clothes I want to wear today aren't clean. And I'm freaking out. And look what the uh, prophet Isaiah said of Jesus 800 years beforehand. That, that's how we would, look, if the, here's the point. If God put the cosmic machine gun in our hand, we would have pulled the trigger, no doubt. But look at Jesus. Isaiah 53, this is what we read. All we, this is 53.6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Not, not a word, not a grumble, not a murmur. Not a complaint. Over and over again, as you make your way through the gospel accounts, you see Jesus in his last hours coming before his accusers and the people that want to kill him. And over and over again, in the face of injustice, he is silent. Silent. Not one complaint. Not one murmur. Not one grumble. Before the kangaroo court, called in the middle of the the night, remember that with the, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders? He's silent. Before Pilate, he's silent. Before Herod, he's silent. When the crowd calls out for a murderer to be released instead of Jesus, he's silent. Why? Why? Well, it's it's right there in Isaiah. It's because he's bearing your iniquity. It's because he's bearing your scorn. He's bearing your punishment. He's bearing your accusations. He silently took the place of the accused. Listen to me. He silently took the place of the accused so that you could joyfully take his place of innocence and righteousness. Do you see? He was silently embracing the word of death so that you could hold fast to the word of life. And it wasn't merely before a human court that He stood condemned. It was before the courts of heaven as he stood in your place. Jesus knew what he would have to do. Jesus knew what he was going to have to endure in order to win your forgiveness. You know, you remember just hours before Jesus is actually betrayed and all those trials and silly court proceedings unfold. He's in a garden, prostrate in the dirt, writhing in agony. And as God holds out the cup he must drink. And, and Jesus begins to see for the first time the hell that is going to have to pierce his heart in order for us to be made right with God. He goes to the Lord in prayer, praying, It it all things are possible for you. Let this cup pass for me. If there's another way, let this cup pass for me. Is he grumbling? Is he complaining? No. In faith, he comes to the Lord asking, pleading even, if there's another way, let this cup pass from me. But Lord, not my will, your will. Yours be done. Not one argument, not one complaint, not one grumble or murmur against God as he sweats drops of blood in anticipation of what's about to happen. He silently stood in your place all the way to the cross. And while his accusers mocked him, he hung there. And again, I mean, just put yourself in that position. He's hanging there. They're they're continuing to mock him. And not one complaint is found on his lips. Instead, he utters words of mercy and forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When the sixth hour had come, the father poured out from the cup until it was empty, unleashing all of his righteous anger on Christ for your sin. His heart was pierced by the eternal hell of God's wrath. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He he was utterly forsaken and abandoned and crushed into the ground. But now look, why? Why though? That's that's the million-dollar question. What is happening on the cross? Why? What what was it that moved Jesus to willingly endure the very judgment of God on the cross? A little further down in Isaiah, we read, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he will bear their iniquities. Do you know what, want to know why Jesus didn't grumble, didn't complain? Do you want to know why he was silent before his ac- accusers? Because he knew on the other side of his life and death and resurrection, what he would get is you. What he would get is your salvation. What he would get is your forgiveness. What he would win is your righteousness. In other words, what moved Jesus towards the cross was his commitment to win your salvation because of his love for you. Jesus willingly endured su- the suffering of the cross for the satisfaction of seeing you counted as righteous, seeing you brought into the family of God and made his own child or the author of Hebrew puts it this way. He says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. You ever wonder what that joy was? What was the joy that was set before Jesus? It, it can't be the joy of fellowship with his father, because he already has that, right? He, he, when he, for all eternity he's had that, for, for 33 years he's had perfect fellowship with God, and now he goes to the cross for the joy that's set before him. What is it that he's That he's going to the cross. What is the joy that he's anticipating on the other side of his life and death and resurrection? It was for the joy of winning something that he didn't yet have. It was for the joy of winning, for redeeming to himself a people. It was for the joy of rescuing you in love. He embraced God's word of death so that he could speak over you the word of life. He endured the ultimate suffering beneath the full force of God's blazing hatred for sin without grumbling or arguing, so that you could endure infinitely smaller sufferings without grumbling because of the joy of knowing the absolute love and acceptance and delight and blessing of God by union with Christ, by faith. See, when you dwell in that story, remember where this started? Stop telling yourself the story of what's wrong in your life and start telling yourself the story of what God has done for you in Christ. When you tell yourself that story, when you live in that story, when you abide in that story, when you cling to that story, when your heart is animated by that story, bickering and grumbling become impossible. It's, it's impossible to stand at the foot of the cross and see Christ spilling his guts and being crushed into the ground so that you can have life in him and then turn away and start grumbling and complaining because someone cut you off in traffic or because you know, your spouse didn't make the dinner that you wanted. It's impossible. You can't. Because what happens is at the cross, you're filled with joy and gratitude towards him. See, when by faith you see the one who had every right and every reason to grumble and argue and to assert his own way, humbly submitting himself to death in your place, the resentment and the bitterness that overflowed in selfish complaining, melts away and is replaced with joy and thanksgiving. And, and it's not only joy here and now, it is the realization of a future perfected joy. We're gonna sing in a few moments, Joy to the World. It's a, we sing it around Christmas time, uh, but when that song was actually written, it was written about Jesus' second coming. That's why I picked this song, because Paul makes reference to the day of Christ. It's a little you know Christmas in August, but the point is, there is a joy that's coming because of what Christ has accomplished for us. And that joy now bleeds back into our experience and we get to move throughout our lives in the joy of knowing all of God's promises secured and guaranteed to us in Christ. Not because of any work that you have done, but because of Christ's finished work. And therefore we are set free. Not because we fear that if we grumble or complain, God's going to drop the hammer and he's going to reject us. No, we are set free because we know we have God's love. We have God's delight. We are set free to now do all things without grumbling or disputing. And so shine as lights in the world. You see? So brothers and sisters, do all things without grumbling or disputing. He's made you blameless, innocent children of God in Christ. Hold fast to the word of life and so shine as lights in the world. Let's pray. Lord, we we thank you for uh, this time again in your word, and I pray uh, that it has nourished uh, the souls of your people, uh, that we have been directed again to see Christ, to see his finished work, to find our rest there. Lord, we pray as we move now to The apostles creed to the lord's supper uh, to singing and praise to you we pray that our hearts would boldly and joyfully sing for you are worthy make us as your children lights who shine in the world your goodness your grace your kindness we pray in jesus name amen (laughs)